Amen indeed. Brethren, would you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. As we return this morning to the epistle to the Romans, I'm going to be looking this morning at verses uh, verses 1 through 5. Romans 2, 1 through 5. If you'd stand for the hearing and honoring of the word of God. Romans 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. We know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our edification. You may be seated, brethren. Brethren, this is is that point in the epistle where I suspect, and I think Paul suspected this too, that... The, the Jews, you remember the situation there at Rome? This was uh, the Jews had been expelled for a while by Emperor Claudius, and the Gentiles had largely been run the church there in Rome for, you know, five, six years. And then the Jews were allowed to come back. And when they came back, they found all of these Gentiles that had been uh, Gentile Christians, but who had not been, you know, not been functioning like good observant Jews, <laughs> keeping the holy days, uh, being kosher, all these things, right? They, they, were, uh, they were not living up to the code, as it were, to the, to the holiness code, to the, to the community standards. Uh, they were expected, at least as the Jews understood it. And so they came back and began to uh, judge and condemn these Gentiles. And this was the source of the dissension there in the Church of Rome into which Paul is writing. And this is that point in the sermon which, you know, Paul, having first begun setting out this gospel that he has, salvation for Jew and Gentile, right, Jew first and also the Greek. And, and in the previous chapter, you know, Paul has been saying in verse 18 through 32 of chapter 1, he's been going after the paganism, the overt paganism of the Gentile nations and their multiplicity of gods and their worship of the creature rather than the creator who is blessed for all, right? Making God after their own image, multiplying gods and becoming like them, beastly, creaturely, downward God, the true God giving them over to their increasingly debased, first of all, their, 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 their debased will and then a debased affection, affections. And then finally, to just as a culture, Gentile cultures in the Roman Empire had just become so debased that, you know, they were given over to depravity of mind. They couldn't even think straight. And as we said, that, that really is, you almost couldn't draw a more graphic and accurate picture of 21st century America than what we just saw at the end of Romans 
um, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the true glory for that which is not glory, right, themselves. And, and you know, all the, the Jews surely hear, hear, hearing hear this, and that's right, Paul. That's exactly right. We know those Gentiles. We know where they've been. We know about their sorry lot and state and their paganism, and go get them, Paul. Well, suddenly in chapter 2, this is the part where, as the old saying goes, Paul uh, leaves off preaching and goes to meddling. Because <laughs> he turns his eyes now not on the overt, the overtly unrighteous, uh, you know, pagans. He turns his gaze on the covertly self-righteous moralist. Code, he turns his gaze on people like you and me. And so, you know, there's a reason why, as I was thinking this week, you know, we many a couple years ago we had worked through First John. And you'll remember in First John that he starts there at the beginning and he tells them that uh, the reason he wrote to them was that they would know Jesus, true, the true God. We've seen, heard, touched, our eyes beheld, hands have handled, so on, the word of life. And that in knowing Jesus, they would have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, with his people. And that they would have fullness of joy in him. And then he goes on and he says that God is light. And this God that we're coming into fellowship with through the gospel, through knowing this, this incarnate Jesus, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Nothing. Not the slightest hint of moral impurity, of lack of virtue. He is perfectly and utterly holy, holy in a way that we are not. We say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we deceive ourselves, we lie, and the truth is not in us. But if we walk in the light, if we humble ourselves and say, you know what, it's not about hiding myself, hiding my sin, hiding my darkness, worrying about my good name or what people think about me, and we say, no, whatever else, I want to walk in the light, and I want to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That is my highest goal. And Lord, do to me what you got to do, but make me more like Jesus. I'm not interested in outward affection. I'm not interested in cleaning the outside of the cup for men's approval. I am only interested in bearing good fruit from the heart that loves and is besotted with, saturated, conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Brethren, that's what it means to walk in the light, as he is in the light. And when we do that, there we have fellowship with one another. There, the blood of Jesus Christ, through the cross, the gospel cleanses us of the guilt and the power and the taint of sin. It actually changes our heart and makes us more godly, truly, more righteous, truly. But there's a reason why then at the very end of 1 John, I don't know if you remember the last verse in 1 John, he closes with this. He says, children, keep yourselves from idols. Because up to this point in Romans, you know, we've saw it's like he's going after the idolatry of these pagans. They've got idols on their mantles. They've got idols aplenty. They've got them in their temples, right? But the Jews, brethren, or these moralists to whom he speaks, he's saying, you have idols too. But yours are covert. 
What you do is you hide them up in your attic where people can't see them rather than displaying on your mantle. But make no mistake about it, you are going up there and you are worshiping your idols. You are using them as substitutes for the living God in your self-righteousness. Brethren, Christians, both individuals and churches, who rightly condemn idolatry and hypocrisy can still be so easily ensnared by idolatry and hypocrisy. But faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the only true, the only truly good. Remember Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. The point he was saying is, look, if you're going to call me good, understand what you're saying. I, you're saying that I am, I am God. I am holy and I am good, altogether pure. And that is true. Brethren, the reality is, is that Jesus is the only true truth. He is fully good and he is righteous in himself. So the only true, good, righteous Savior and judge of all is the focus of our faith. And he will keep us He will keep us judging ourselves rightly and others the way he does, not the way the devil does. Judging ourselves rightly in holy, happy humility rather than hasty, haughty hubris. That's the devil's way. On the one hand, the righteousness of God that saves us from his righteous wrath requires death to ourself. Death to all striving after self and flesh-produced righteousness of any sort after our own image or by our own standards. On the other hand, our sharing in God's true righteousness, the righteousness that Jesus gives, requires in us a new birth with Christ into newness of his resurrection life and power, working within us to will and to do according to what Jesus is working in us. Because it's him working in us by his spirit and through the word to will and to do what is pleasing. Brethren, Jesus wasn't kidding in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus goes in Matthew 23, remember when he takes on the scribes and the Pharisees directly, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You wash the outside of the cup. Your masters at making it clean. Oh, look how good you do. You give long prayers in the temple. You do your alms, Matthew 6, to be seen by men. But inside, he says, you are whitewashed tombs. You're full of dead men's bones. You do the same things as the people you're accusing and that you speak. In John 7, 49, these people are accursed, not knowing the law, the Pharisees said. And that yet in John 8, 1, there's the woman caught in adultery by the, Pharise- by the scribes and Pharisees, dragged before Jesus. And what does Jesus say? You... You who are without sin, what he means is you, scribes, Pharisees, who have not functionally already committed adultery, have not already engaged and divorced your wives, who have taken such a light view of the law of God and done this yourself, go ahead and cast the first stone. Brethren, that's the point. Let's let the word of God today go after our hypocrisies we'll find that there's grace and mercy there. A couple of observations and then uh, just some applications. Number one, really I just want to focus on, on, on the thing that really I would say is the heart of this passage in terms of the, the doctrine here is, is Paul is focusing on two types of judgment. And those two types of judgment reflect two forms of, of worship. You might say two forms of idolatry. 
Let's focus first on the two types of judgment. The two, when I say judgment, I want to be clear here. Paul, as we see in other places, as with Jesus, the, the command is not that we make no judgments. Right? As Christians, we're commanded to make judgments. Anytime you meet anybody, I may not condemn them, but I'm making a, uh, an internal assessment of them, right? Right? If I am at the store and I see a person, you know, um, who's walking in a way that is kind of intimidating towards our car, you know, you know, am I maybe going to rightly say, you know what, we're going to step back and <laughs> we're going to take some precaution here. You say, how dare you judge? Well, it's like we do that. We make judgments. We make assessments. Jesus is not telling us don't make judgments in the sense of making assessments and acting wisely. What Jesus tells us in Matthew 7 is before, you know, it's not making those kind of judgments. It's making hypocritical judgments. It's judging with a double standard. So let's keep that in mind. It's the double standard hypocritical judgments which is being condemned. What Paul is going after here. But what he's saying is there's two fundamental types of judgment or two condemnations, two types of wrath. There's on the one hand, there's God's righteous wrath, verse 2. And in contrast, he's going to say there's man's unrighteous, self-serving wrath. First of all, look at verse 2. I'm just going to focus there. Paul, Paul says here in verse 2 that we know that the judgment of God, the wrath of God, which he's been speaking about in chapter 1, we know that God's righteous judgment, his wrath is according to truth. His just judgment as the judge of all the earth is according to truth against those who practice such things. It's true in every detail. There's no escape from that, brethren. We can lie to ourselves. We can make light of our sin. We can sugarcoat it, try to whitewash it. But, brethren, the searching eye of the Almighty God and of His law pierces to the deepest soul uh, areas of us. I want to give you a little challenge. Uh, we want to do this. Take your Westminster Larger Catechism. This is a good exercise. Take your Westminster Larger Catechism sometime. Go to question 100-something. I forget where the starts on the application of the Ten Commandments, where, where it breaks down the, uh, what is uh, required, what is forbidden, both in terms of the outward expression as well as the heart and affections. I love this about the Catechism. It gets, it gets deep. And it presses the law into those corners. Just go read that and tell me if that doesn't bring you to your knees. You know, the, 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 sort of, the, the, the judgment of God is according to truth. You say, well, of course, you know, like the Pharisees, well, we don't, I may not be, a, I haven't, you know, gone out and committed adultery with my wife, with some other woman. I haven't done that. It's like, but what are you looking at at home? Maybe I haven't violated the seventh commandment in the same way, but am I doing it and then throwing rocks at you? <laughs> Not getting at the root. God's judgment, he says, is according to truth. It's according to the deepest truth. It exposes the deepest things, the heart. I love the way Hebrews chapter 4 puts it. In fact, if you want to just turn there real quick, this, 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 this hits it so well. Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us there in, in verse 12 and following, it says there that, uh, verse 11, Let us therefore be diligent to enter into God's rest, lest anyone should fall according to the same example of disobedience. Here's why. Because the Word of God is living. It's not dead. It's living. And it's powerful. 
And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. I assure you, we tend to want to use, uh, look at ourselves and use, uh, assess ourselves with like a very blunt, uh, very, very blunt, barely sharpened, if at all, uh, butter knife. <laughs> and probably plastic to boot. We're, 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 the, Lord, the Word of God is like a, a razor-sharp scalpel. And it gets down to the things that we don't want uncovered. And it brings them into the light. The thoughts, the intentions, he says here. The word of God is living, active, powerful, sharpening, two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and they're open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Brethren, that's the judgment of God according to truth. Nowhere to hide from the light of God. So then what do you do? And this is the second thing about God's judgment, though. You notice in verse 4, Paul mentions there, he asks, do you despise God's way, God's justice, you moralists, you men, those who judge others and practice them? Do you despise? Because God's justice, while it's just, it's one that is tempered by and seasoned with mercy. He says in verse 4 that God's justice, His way is, is one that is full of long-suffering, forbearance, goodness. Now God's wrath will break. God's love is not unconditional. But brethren, God's way of doing justice is full of long-suffering. It's extraordinarily patient. The people sins. He is good. Think of Matthew, Matthew 5. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He does good to the evil and to the righteous. He tells us when somebody blesses, when somebody smacks you on your right face, turn to them the other. Bless those who curse you. Why? He says, because verse 48, in so doing, you'll be like your heavenly father. That's how God is, brethren. And he asked them here, do you, do you despise that? Do you, do you wish justice, vengeance, now? Don't sit there and pretend like you're being godly when you're that way. God is slow to wrath, quick to hear, slow to wrath, slow to anger. Brethren, we must be the same. And so the righteous judgment of God is that kind. It's about God's glory, not my glory. It's not what people think of me. It's not chafed at people, you know, they made light of my name or they, they messed up my schedule or they made my life a little more difficult. The wrath of God is based upon God's glory and it is long-suffering, patient, and full of goodness and kindness even when it's spited. Brethren, is our wrath that way? Because the opposite type of wrath here is what I'm going to call Satan's judgment. I think that may sound overly harsh, but the opposite of God's righteous judgment is, is the hypocritical, self-defending, and accusatory judgment of the evil one. It's not, it's based, it's, you know, Satan's judgment is it's unrighteous, self-righteous judgment according to self-protection, self-deception and ultimately according to the flesh rather than the spirit. Again, it's hypocritical. 
It seeks offenses, guilt, and judges by a double standard that justifies or excuses in itself what it condemns and accuses in others in order to hide and cover its own shame and darkness by first exposing shame and darkness in others. You ever heard that phrase, the best, uh, the best uh, defense is a good offense? <laughs> That's the mindset, right? The best way to defend my name for people thinking ill of me or seeing what's down there in the depths of my heart is going after you first. <laughs> if I go after and expose you first, then I'm safe. The light never gets turned on me. It's that mindset that says I'm quick to accuse. Self-defense by offense. Self-righteous people add they do this by adding written or often unwritten rules and codes to the letter of God's law in order to help people keep God's law better, right? Remember the Pharisees? This is what they did. They thought, well, we're not like those Gentiles. The Gentiles don't keep the word of God. Oh, they don't keep God's law. They just flagrantly violate it. What did the scribes and Pharisees do? They heaped on all these. How, how far can you walk on the Sabbath day? How many steps exactly is that? How, how, how may you prepare, you know, all, to, all in the name of, let's help, let's help you keep God's law. And brethren, Jesus went after them hard. Do, do you understand that it is just as serious of a thing to take away from God's word, as it, to add to God's word as it is to take away from it? To, pl- to multiply rules and codes. Their focus is on primarily external appearances, externals, the outside of the cup, behaviors to justify themselves for their own approval and blessing. Again, this is what Jesus went after in the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees knew nothing, brethren. They knew nothing of poverty of spirit. Scribes and Pharisees knew nothing of mourning over sin in themselves and others. Truly, they like to condemn But think of the Beatitudes. Did the scribes and Pharisees know anything really about mourning over their own sins? Did they mourn over the sins of their brethren? Did they, they, these people are accursed, not worthy, you know? Did they know anything of meekness at all? Did they know anything of truly hungering, thirsting after heart righteousness in the depths of their soul conformity to Christ? Did they know anything of mercy? Blessed are the merciful. Did they know anything truly of purity of heart? Were they really peacemakers in the truest sense of the word? Were they peacemakers and peacebreakers? And they would do anything to avoid persecution, even persecuting the righteous to avoid persecution, right? They didn't know the Beatitudes, and therefore they were not the salt of the earth. They were not the light of the world. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that kind of outward appearance-based self-righteousness, you have no place in the kingdom of God. Brethren, that's serious. They're full of accusation, just like the devil. The devil is the, uh, the accuser of the brethren. You ever think about that? He's called in Revelation 12, you remember that, the accuser of the brethren has finally been cast down. 
Self-righteous moralists, these old men to whom Paul is addressing here. Self-righteous people, they seek to establish, as I said, their own righteousness before God and men by explicitly or implicitly refusing to submit themselves to the true standard of God's own holy, pure, true, just righteousness. Think to Romans 10. Later in this very epistle, the apostle Paul is once again going to speak to these same people, these moralists, and he's going to say there in chapter 10, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God oh boy they have a they have zeal for God man their doctrine is spot on look at that confession Mm. but it's not according to knowledge how do I know that Paul says he says for they being ignorant of God's righteousness of the true righteousness that demands holiness and purity in the depths of your heart motives intents thoughts from whence comes all things. They, being ignorant of God's true righteousness, of the God that they say they worship, they don't really know Him. Not really. Because if they really knew Him, they wouldn't be ignorant of His righteousness. And instead, it says, they seek to establish their own righteousness as a substitute and not submitting themselves to God's righteousness. Brethren, that's the heart of the moralist. And so, therefore, because they've established their own standard of righteousness, they're quick to accuse, quick to condemn others. You're always looking around at others. Are they living up to the code? Are they keeping up to the standard? And some people actually write out lists, but a lot of, you know, one thing the Pharisee mindset does is it always keeps lists. You know what the score is, don't you? Maybe I don't have it written out, but I know how you stand, and I know what you've done. I know what you've done, and I assure you, if it comes to a point where I need to pull that list out in self-defense or to defend my name, I've got it ready. Brethren, do you see that? They're not dead to themselves. The problem is is that it's all about self and self-defense, whereas the Christian, what Jesus says, if we're going to come to Jesus, it's you died. You died. Your name, your repetition, you died. You rose with Christ. The only thing that matters, he must increase, I must decrease. Boy, the Pharisees knew nothing of that. That's why they despised John's baptism, because for them it was about we must increase. It's what people think of me that matters most, not so. Brethren, get back to Luke 18. That was our verse today, right? Oh, God, I thank you. Now, again, I understand None of us probably would actually stand there and pray that way. Not, well, certainly not publicly, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> but let's be honest. My thoughts, Lord, thank you. I'm not like those people. All right? I do this. I'm a post-millennialist. I homeschool my kids. I attend a family-integrated church. I believe in sovereign grace and theonomy. Brethren, do you see it? The heart of the moralist. The heart of the self-righteous. And I know, yeah, I've given my tithe. I know exactly how much. And, and I've got my list of the things I've done, my good deeds. I've got them up here. I know what the score is, brethren. People who are dead to themselves don't keep score. 
They don't keep other people's score. They don't keep mine. We're not going to accuse them. And I'll just say this. These things reflect idolatry. Like I said, I just want to say the key principle of the scripture we always see is you become like what you worship, right? Whether overtly or covertly. So in order to understand, so, to, so the, the standard in med, so here's the thing. The standard and the manner then in which you judge others reveals what you actually truly worship. The way I judge other people, the way I deal with them, whether with goodness, long-suffering, forbearance, genuine yearning for their blessing, hungering for deep heart righteousness, patience, you know, quick to hear, slow to wrath, or whether I am quick to accuse, quick to defend, put, you know, go after them and cover my own sins, brethren, that actually tells me something about the God you're really worshiping. Of course, yes, the Gentiles, they were all about overt, open idolatry, the paganism of the Gentile nations, like I said, open, openly displaying their idolatry and their creatureliness by their idols on display in their temples and also by the way that they just became increasingly debased and, gr- and, gray and idolatrous and creaturely in their behavior. We read all about that in Romans chapter 1 at the end. Right? They become like what they worship, Psalm 115 says. I love the way Psalm 115 puts that. Actually, it's great. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone who trusts in them. You become like what you really worship, brethren, what you're looking at. And it's easy to see with the, the pagans. Yeah, they're, they worship creatures. They worship demons. They're becoming that way. But brethren, what happens when you are covertly worshiping hidden idols as, as a moralist? When you're secretly hiding and worshiping, obeying the idol of self, of self, self-centeredness, self-concern. Everything's about self, self-righteousness instead of submitting to God's righteousness. When you obey that idol that you've manipulated or into your own image, You've made a God who's just like yourself, who grades on a curve, whose standard of grading is just like yours instead of the God who is and who exposes everything. Brethren, when you make a God who's just like you, and you, even if you hide him up in the attic where nobody can see, brethren, I assure you, that kind of self-justifying, self-sanctifying, self-standard, by your own flesh, focused on externals, code, rule-keeping mindset, brethren, that shows that you're worshiping a false God too. It does. The fact is, these Jewish moralizers, they didn't realize it, but they weren't worshiping Jehovah. I want to read all about that in John 8. You say you know God, the God you claim to be your God. You say you're children of Abraham. If you were really Abraham's children, you would hear what I say, for I was sent from God. You, rather, he says, are of your father, the devil. And the lies of your father you believe and do. Brethren, these weren't the pagans. These were the self-righteous. These were the scribes and Pharisees, right? I remind you what 1 John 5 says. My children, guard yourselves from idols. How do you do that? Walk in the light as he is in the light. Search me, O God. Try me. Know my thoughts, Psalm 139 says. See if there's any wicked way in me. Let that be your prayer every day.
Lord, I don't want anything in my life. Not only my outward actions, I don't want my inner affections tainted with self-righteousness. I want Jesus top to bottom. I want to hunger and thirst for that deep righteousness from the heart. Be like Christ. So let me just close with this a couple quick applications. Number one, brethren, have you died to yourself? Do you count yourself as dead and crucified with Christ? Can you say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live. Not I, but Jesus lives in me. The life I live, now I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, gave himself to me. Can you say with Colossians 3, you died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Because see, here's the thing, brethren. People who have died and been risen again with a new name, right? With a new name, a new identity, well, then old things have passed away. They just, they're not self-deprecating. You know, the, the scribes and Pharisees, I'm sure, were very self-deprecating, very, you know, self in some ways. Brethren, the problem is not whether you're self-aggrandizing or self-deprecating. The problem with both the pagan and the Pharisee is the self at all. The Christian is selfless. The Christian is self-dead. And self risen again to newness of life in Christ. Brethren, is your single highest goal? It's all about Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> More of Jesus in me, through me, from me. It's just it's Jesus. Secondly, I'm going to ask you the questions. I'll ask them of me, the things that Paul asked you. Brethren, do, do you think, as he says, do you think that we will escape God's righteous wrath and judgment in this life? And even more so on the last day, if we suppress his truth in self-righteousness. If we suppress the truth in ungodliness and his unrighteousness like the Gentiles, but we do it in self-righteousness. If we substitute our fleshly works righteousness for inner Christ righteousness. If we, separate, if we, if we focus on external codes they're all about the outward and about the appearance and looking good outwardly. But for internal, do you think, it's like, well, surely I'll, I'll fare better than all those pagan Gentiles. Paul's saying, no, you won't. The judgment of God is according to truth. Brethren, let's consider that. I will tell you pastorally, many, many mid late life crises that you know people go to midlife crises or you know they they get to this place where so many we're seeing now where, where they're they're um, deconverting you know we've seen these things these brethren what's going on with that how how could they get to 20 30 years working walking with the lord and then deconvert i'll tell you what's happening brethren the idols that they have really been worshiping the whole time have suddenly come to fruition those idols they've been hiding in the, in the attic have suddenly come out and taken up camp right there in their living room or on their front lawn. But they've been there all along, brethren. Do you see what's happening? Idolatry running its course. The wrath of God being revealed, giving them over to what's really going on in their heart. Brethren, don't toy with this. Don't toy with idolatry. Don't toy with idolatry. You will become like what you worship, whether you like it or not. What you're actually becoming is a public revelation of what you truly worship. I ask you this. 
Say what Paul says here. He says, do you despise? Do you secretly despise the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering towards your sins or more towards the sins of others? Does it get angry when God doesn't just bust their sorry rears right away? I want justice, God. Well, I want justice, and it's right that we should pray for justice. But brethren, does God's long-suffering and patient toward us, not desiring that any should perish, 2 Peter 3, but that all should come to repentance, does that bother you? Do you find yourself sometimes saying, oh, you know what? I can't wait to see what this person gets. I can't wait to see, you know, they're going to get it. Let that be a check on us right there. Lord God, whoa, step back from that. Step back from that. Oh God, don't judge me by that same standard that I'm, I'm applying. Have mercy and long-suffering forbearance toward my soul. The goodness of God, he says, drives us to repentance. I'll say the word to my parents here, to parents too. Brethren, parents, do you drive your kids as you nurture and admonish them in the Good, uh, in the ways of the Lord, as you seek to bring them up in the ways of the Lord, do you fundamentally, are you training them to obey? We want obedience. Parents, you want your children to obey? Sure. I do. But are we doing that from a, a, a standpoint of wrath, fear, or are we doing it fundamentally from a, the goodness of God drives you to true repentance? Even when I, when I have to bring out the rod, we go to Hebrews 12 because it tells me in Hebrews 12, God disciplines those whom he loves. He cares about you so much. He's going to not let you walk in this way of idolatry and unrighteousness because he loves you and he wants you to bear good fruits. He wants you to know that you're loved. Do you see that, brethren? Do your kids know that when I discipline them, whether it's by admonition or, or when we have to bring out the rod, it's because God is good. Because he is long-suffering, because he is interested in me bearing good fruit and loving him and being blessed. Or is it just wrath because I'm so angry that you made my life hard, or you did this, you messed up my schedule, or you, you, you did something that caused people to think ill of me? Away with that, brethren. Give it to Jesus and lay it at the cross. Brethren, the only cure for hypocrisy and the pride and the idolatry underlying it is gospel-believing humility that sees its own self rightly, sees the log in my eye first, and then I will see rightly, I will see rightly to truly be able to speak to you, and I will, in sincere love about the speck in your eye. It's not that Christians don't speak to others about the specs and the sins in their lives, but Christians have a holy humility that says, Lord, deal with me first. And I, I will not, by God's grace, be a hypocrite. But I will be humble and I will be true. And whatever I do is going to be clothed in the righteousness and grace and the long-suffering and kindness and truth of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Father, I pray this week as we go forth today, as we consider this sermon, Lord, would you give us all the grace, most especially me, to let you search into the deep places of my heart. Father, we invite the Holy Spirit to come and search us. Let your word convict us of any and all sin there, 
not only outward acts, but inward thoughts, affections, motivations that are rooted in self, that are rooted in idolatry instead of in the worship of Jesus Christ and the living and true God. Father, we want to be people that hunger and thirst for that kind of righteousness. We want to be people who are truly pure of heart because the promise is that when there's purity of heart, we will see God. We will see him at the last day, but we will see him with the eyes of faith and see him working in and through us, blessing us in this life. Father, give us purity of heart. And in giving us purity of heart, Father, give us the kind of patience and long-suffering, the kind of goodness, Father, that would judge us, to, that would cause us to be people who are quick to hear, slow to condemn, slow to wrath, because that's the way you are. We pray this in Jesus' holy name.